Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to She Said, She Said's third very special episode of our hashtag iCandy show, a program where we celebrate and honor those internet movers and shakers who are ideal. That is, they're interesting, innovative, and iconic. They are incredible men and women, hence iCandy. I'm Lena Stagg, your co-host of She Said, She Said, and I'm the author of the Recipe Records cookbook series. They're rock and roll cookbooks full of good food, good fun, and great rock and roll stories, facts, and trivia. Please check them out at lanastag.com and sign up for my newsletter and my rock and roll blog. And hey, guys, it's Jude Sutherland Kessler here. As some of you know, I am the author of the John Lennon series, which is a highly researched and documented narrative history of John's life and, of course, his buddies, his mates, the Beatles. It's a nine-volume series. Three of the books are already on the market. The fourth will be out in August, and it tells the story of John and the Beatles in 1964. Now, you can explore that volume and read a sample chapter at my website, which is very logically called johnlennonseries.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the monthly newsletter because every month I offer some special discount or gift for people pre-ordering Volume 4. This month, you get a copy of the Doors of Liverpool art poster for everyone pre-ordering. Well, I am Lena's co-host and her faithful sidekick and the two of us are here at least once a month and from the title of our show she said she said that explains what we do we compare and contrast controversial topics in the Beatles world and every so often Jude and I pause in our Beatles debates and discussions to introduce you to some of the most important and inspirational personalities that we've encountered in the Beatles world and today we are so excited to give you a chance to get to know the man we fondly refer to as the Beatles Effenpedia. <laughs> it's the truth. I am not joking guys. He is the Beatles music and recording guru, no one. And let me emphasize that. No one knows more about Beatles records and music, how the records were made, how they were packaged, promoted, sold, every detail of Beatles music. In fact, over the last 20 years, he has written nine books about Beatles music going into vast detail on every aspect of their work. Yes, his name pops up in it, it pops up everywhere. In fact, I was listening to Sirius XM, the Beatles channel, a few couple of months ago, I guess, 
and they were talking about this encyclopedia, Bruce Spizer, and uh, it was very charming to hear them talk about um, all of the all of the details and facts that Bruce knows. He hails from New Orleans, where he is a respected tax attorney. I wonder if George Harrison would have liked that. But to us, he is the go-to person for any and every question on Beatles music and recordings. He is celebrating his 20th year as an author on this topic, and we are so thrilled to have him here with us today. So everybody, give a very warm welcome to Lena's friend and my dear friend, drumroll please, Mr. Bruce Spizer. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the introduction and glad to be on your show. We always love having you here, Bruce. Absolutely. You are um, very, very loved in the Beatles world, and we're so happy that you could make time to be with us today. Well, we have about 25 minutes to talk about all nine of your books, number nine, how you came to write each book and what each book covers. So without a lot of interruption from us, why don't you walk us through the story of how you decided to write about the Beatles music and how one book turned into John's number nine, number nine. (laughs) Number nine, and and giving you minutes during tax season, too. But that shows you how much I enjoy being on the show. (laughs) So I got this crazy idea about, well, 29 years ago and nine months, I guess, (laughs) to uh, Mm -hmm. do a book on the Beatles. And the uh, the idea really was that – I had started collecting Beatle records over again because roaches had eaten the spines of my Beatle albums. You can't make Aww. this stuff up. And Aww. I didn't want to replace them with, you know, the reissues. I wanted the same albums that I had back in the 60s. And so uh, I figured, well, let me read up on it. Let me talk to dealers. And the information I was getting to me as an attorney just didn't sound right on the Beatles' early records mm. on the VJ label, uh, you know, because... They were on multiple labels in the early days, and uh, and I kept asking, well, why did this come out, or how did this go? And, and nothing to me made any sense, and I would say, well, that doesn't make any sense, and I would be told, well, it's in every book. So being an attorney, I thought, well, what if every book were wrong? Because, you know, if the first book mm-hmm. out there was wrong, all the following books could be. So I thought, well, if the Beatles were on Capital and VJ at about the same time, the two companies must have sued each other and found out that, in fact, they had sued each other four times, and I got copies of those lawsuits made and then went through the microfiche and, in researching it, pretty much determined what happened. And in talking about some of these things with a Beatles dealer, Perry Cox, Perry, you know, said, well, you know, and I bet there's a book in that. And so I thought, okay, and I thought I could see me going to a book publisher. Hi, I want to do a book on the Beatles records on VJ. Now, yeah. VJ had 16 Beatles masters. That's all they had. And uh, in the book, I want it to be full color. And why are you laughing at me? You know, so I said, I'm going to have to self-publish this. And so that's what I did. And at the time, self-published normally meant, eh. And I thought, well, what if I did the level of research that Mark Lewison would do and gave the book a lot of pizzazz and color 
and uh, and did it that way. And since I was publishing it myself, I didn't have to settle for a plate of eight picture, you know, eight pages of pictures in the middle of the book. I could put color throughout the book and do whatever I wanted. And mm-hmm. I just settled a big class action lawsuit, and I thought I have the money to finance it. Let's go. And so, being mm-hmm. naive, I thought I wanted the book ready for the March 1998 Beetle Fest, as it was called in those days. And even though it was only nine months away, I was convinced that could be done. Called up a, a graphic mm-hmm. designer I knew, Diana Thornton, and off we went, silly people, thinking it could be done in nine months. Oddly enough, we did it in nine months. And, wow. Uh, the book made its debut at that fest, and uh, I remember that Saturday, it, you know, I sold some copies Friday night, and, and two of the record dealers came up to me, and they said, we're really mad at you. And I said, why? And they said, we didn't get any sleep last night. We were reading and discussing the book till 3 in the morning. <laughs> so I knew I had something there. And so what the book does is it tells the convoluted story behind VJ Records, how Capital turned them down, which got them on VJ, and how VJ managed to take 16 Beatles songs and turn it into 16 different records. No easy thing. And yeah. so that's kind of what the book did. And uh, just all kind of stories that you just couldn't make up. Uh, and so the book came out, and, and you know, and after it came out, people were like, well, when's the Capitol book coming out? And I thought it was going to be one book as a footnote in Beatles history. So, okay, we'll do a book on the Beatles records on Capitol Records. And I started that book. And as I got into it, I realized that this book was going to be a minimum of four to 500 pages. And I thought, well, if that's the case, I can't do it in one book. So it became part one covering Beatlemania and the singles and part two, the albums. And the idea in part one was to lay the foundation of why did Capitol turn down the Beatles four times? What happened to make them finally sign the Beatles? What happened when they did sign the Beatles? And the party line for years had been, you know, Capitol butchered the Beatles. They ruined these well-crafted albums. What they did was garbage. And I didn't believe that. Uh, And I became more convinced when I did my research. I have a background not only as an attorney, but I have a master's in business administration in marketing and finance. And so uh, for that reason, I thought Capitol didn't butcher the Beatles. They marketed the Beatles. And Mm -hmm. what they were doing was done all throughout the world at the time. We were not in a global community in those days, so keep that in mind. Each country would market a group for their own market, which makes sense. And Capital did something that was really clever, because prior to the Beatles, teen albums sold at most a quarter of a million units. The Beach Boys, a quarter of a million was considered a phenomenal success. And Capital's philosophy unlike in the U.K. where they didn't want to put a single on an album because you didn't want to have to buy a song twice, the philosophy of Capital was hit singles make hit albums. So that's why Capital put singles on the albums. And what they found with Meet the Beatles, their forecast was 250,000 units. But Meet the Beatles, in too much time, had sold 3.6 million copies. Mm. Now, obviously, Capital must have done something right for that to happen. Right. So they effectively marketed the group. And once you get over that hurdle, you know, then you can write about them and talk about the good things that Capital did. Look, was everything a grand slam? No. 
But Meet the Beatles was a better album than With the Beatles to introduce the Beatles to the American market. Why? Think about it. If you were putting out an album to introduce a band, what song would you rather have on your album? I Want to Hold Your Hand or Devil in Her Heart? I mean, there's no comparison. (laughs) So, you know, and so the Capital Books, you know, and I'm working on these two Capital Books, and before the Capital Books came out, People are telling me, you know, emailing me or seeing me at a Beatles convention saying, you know, I can't wait till your Apple book comes out. So, you know, <laughs> so here we go again. So, you know, we have these capital books where I, you know, defend the integrity of capital. And look, and when I do that, I'm not trying to say that what the Beatles did was wrong and capital fixed it by any means. What I am saying is capital did what was appropriate at the time and for the most part, did a really good job. And even on albums where you might say, gee, something new could have been better or this or that, they were working with limitations because United Artists had the soundtrack rights to A Hard Day's Night. So that put them in a bit of a bind. But many of the albums are absolutely brilliant. Magical Mystery Tour. In England, it was a two-EP set. Capital turned it into an album by putting the singles on it, and it was such a great idea that EMI eventually said, hey, we need to put this out. And when EPs began to fade in the U.K., they did. And Magical Mystery Tour is now part of the core Apple album catalog of the Beatles. Right. So Capital did a lot right. So those books come out. Now, uh, then, you know, book number four, the Apple book, which people were having me do before I even finished the Capital book. <laughs> and and then the idea on that was... I initially had to tell the story of how did Apple Records come around? You know, why sure. did the Beatles do all this? Because at the time, it wasn't all that common. Frank Sinatra did have reprise records, and the Beach Boys did have Brother. But this was, you know, not that common an idea. And Apple uh, was not really started as this great utopian thing that it morphed into. It was started for tax reasons, and as a tax attorney, that made the research on that pretty easy for me. Sure. And so basically what they were told was individuals get taxed at a high rate. If you form some sort of partnership, uh, then expenses of the partnership can be deductible, whereas as a person you couldn't deduct them. And so in effect, uh, their accountants advised them to set something up. Their accountants recommended real estate, and they bought a building on Baker Street. They recommended Mm -hmm. they do greeting cards as a business, and John basically said, we're not going to be doing bloody business, you know, bloody (laughs) greeting cards. That didn't happen. Uh, And Paul suggested music publishing. So Apple actually started as a music publishing company, and they signed some songwriters like Jackie Lomax, who they later recorded. And then they got the idea, you know, to do Apple Records. And the thing with Apple Records was because they were under contract to EMI and Capital, the Beatles were never Apple recording artists, ever. Uh, However, they did have their own record company signing other acts, and EMI and Capital negotiated with Apple for the distribution of those to get Mary Hopkin and, you know, James Taylor and these other artists. And as an accommodation to the Beatles, they agreed that they would press the Beatle records with Apple labels. So that's why you never see, you know, you see a Capital catalog number on the record labels of these albums rather than, an Apple catalog number. So that explains that. Uh, And uh, the book tells, of course, it goes through, all the books go through how the songs were written, how the songs were recorded, and how the songs were marketed. 
um, because of that marketing background. That always fascinated me. And look, these books do have images of record labels in them. Don't freak out. If you don't want to look at the record labels and read about it, you just skip and move on. All of these (laughs) books have fascinating stories. And I feel sometimes people out there are penalizing me and not buying the book because they say, well, it's a book of labels. Yeah, it does have record labels in it, but nobody's making you read all that stuff. And uh, and those first four books have sold out. And for those of you that go online to try to buy them in the secondary market, you will see the VJ book usually averages between three and four hundred a copy, and the Capital and Apple books anywhere from a hundred to a hundred and fifty or so. Now you might say, "Gee, can I still get those books at reasonable prices?" Yes, you can because the first three, the VJ and the Two Capital, have revised and expanded digital editions. And these are significant expansions of these first three books where there's all sorts of new information that I either later learned or couldn't put in the books because, you know, when you have a page count in print, you're concerned about costs. Even if you're self-publishing, you've got to draw the line somewhere. And in this case, with no limits, I could do things like in the Capital Singles book, we always said Capital didn't sign the Beatles because every time they put out a British record act, by a you know, pop or rock group, it didn't sell. Well, in the revised expanded edition, I list all of those records from 1956 to 63, show how many copies each sold, and describe wow. what the record was with images of most of the labels. Uh, for example, with the exception of Laurie London's, he's got the whole world in his hands. Only uh-huh. that one sold over a million. None of them sold a million. Ron Goodwin did an instrumental that sold over 100,000. The rest were either under 100,000, and some of them were negative, meaning that they pressed and distributed 250 promo copies and only sold 200, so it sold negative 50 copies. So you kind of see what Capital was doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that explains a lot, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Now, I took a break from the record series to do a book called The Beatles Are Coming, The Birth of Beatlemania in America. Which I love. Yeah, thanks. That that, that's actually my favorite book because it's such a convoluted story, and it and it tells how the Beatles, you know, ended up on all these different record labels and ties everything up, and then actually talks about that first trip to America. The book opens with the Beatles landing in New York on February 7, 1964, going through customs, the press conference, going back and seeing themselves on the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. <laughs> and it immediately, after that, you know, Walter says, and that's the way it is, you know, Friday, February 7, 1964. And then I go back exactly one year earlier to February 7, 1963. My research uncovered mm-hmm. that the Beatles' first American record, Please Please Me, was released on that date, exactly a year before mm-hmm. they arrive in America, and I point out how that comes out with no fanfare and describes what happened in that year's time to have 3,000 kids cut school in New York to see the Beatles land and to see <laughs> 73 million people tune in to see them on the Ed Sullivan Show. And then, of course, it picks up with the Sullivan Show and that first U.S. visit, the Washington Coliseum, Carnegie Hall shows, uh, you know, the Beatles in Miami and heading back to London. Uh, fascinating book, tons of stories, very few record labels, folks. And that one is still <laughs> available in hardcover and paperback. But if you go to my website, Beatle.net, the Beatles are coming as on sale for $20 because it's the 20th anniversary. 
and it also comes with some posters and a bookmark, which looks like the Washington Coliseum ticket. So I do recommend you check that Mm -hmm. one out. That book is phenomenal. I cannot recommend that people – I would grab that up the second this radio show ends. The book tells stories that are – uh, erroneously presented in other sources and um, it is every detail Bruce gets every detail right so you need to get a copy of that book and you know and the, the fun stuff in there and one of the things that the VJ book in this book did too was introducing the Beatles everyone thought it came out in the summer 63 did not come out to January 10 64 and in both the VJ book and Beatles are coming I lay out my case as how do I know that and it's yeah. 100% foolproof and shows when the record actually did come out so um, after taking a break from going to the records I come back to the records for a book called The Beatles Solo on Apple Records which is really like four separate books it covers the solo recordings uh, issued by each member of the group uh, from 1968 through 1975 so of course uh, for Jude I uh, I included John I wasn't going to include no of course I was going to (laughs) John. Uh, and once again, it goes through, you know, how these songs were written, how they were recorded, how they were marketed, you know, beautiful color images of the billboard ads and picture sleeves and album covers and, you know, and all those other fun things. And I know that a lot of the particularly so-called younger people, the 1.5 generation Beatle fans, as they're often called, love that book because they really were introduced to the Beatles through the solo catalog as opposed mm-hmm. to the group's catalog themselves. And that book is, is clearly available. And, you know, I've, I'm down to, we printed uh, about, I think, 8,000 of them, and I'm down to about uh, a little over 1,000 copies on that one. So it's wow. not going to sell out um, within the next week or so, but eventually it will sell off. But, uh, yeah. uh, you know, that's out there. So, you know, that kind of covered everything except what about the oddball stuff? You know, She Loves You wasn't on Capitol or VJ, it was on Swan Records. And then mm-hmm. what about the United Artists soundtrack? And then, you know, what about all those Capitol albums that came out, you know, after Magical Mystery Tour, you know, the so-called theme albums like Rock and Roll Music or Love Songs? You know, right. what about those? Well, so what I did was I did a book, and I decided I, since the Beatles like puns and I like puns, I would have a title <laughs> that was a pun, and I was going to call the book the Beatles Swan Song. And, of course, She Loves You was the Beatles Swan Song because it was the only <laughs> record on Swan. And also the book was going to be my Swan Song. You know, I've said everything that I care to say about it. I've covered it all. The book came out in 2007, and it had the She Loves You and the See Dick, the German vision of She Loves You singles on Swan. It had the Hard Day's Night album on, um, you know, on United Artists. It also covered the German recordings, which had been on you know different labels such as Decca, MGM Records, and Atco in the states, and then Polydor for an album later on, and then also that second section with you know the Capital theme albums and things, and it also had updates on the other books. So it was a real kind of a catch-all book, and that was going to be the last one until Frank Daniels who uh, loves the British releases, said, Bruce, nobody's really done a comprehensive book on the British records. You and I need to do one. And basically, he all but put a gun to my head. And we went ahead and did (laughs) the Beatles for Sale on Parlophone Records, which is the most comprehensive of any of the titles. 
it has you know everything all the british singles all the british albums all the british eps and once again goes through how the songs were written how they were recorded how they were marketed in images of all these things and that one came out in 2011 so it took four years for me to agree to do another book and that of yeah. course is still available and finally book number nine mm-hmm. we move <laughs> on to uh you know the 50th anniversary of sergeant pepper was coming up and i wrote this essay that i thought was really you know pretty good told a lot of things you know and i was gonna thought well should i run it in beetle fan and i thought i love beetle fan i write for beetle fan every issue but beetle fan is a great magazine for information but it doesn't have color images and this thing needs color images and i thought well maybe i could send it to some magazine and i thought but they're not gonna they're just not gonna do it right and so i thought i'll put it out myself in magazine format and then i thought you know what if i expanded it a bit and got some other contributions so i talked to uh, some of the people over at Beetle Fan, publisher and editor Bill King, Al Sussman, mm-hmm. one of the editors over there. And I said, look, you guys wrote some pieces on Pepper for an earlier anniversary, but they're good pieces. Can I use these articles in the book? Sure. And then I got Pierce Hemmingston, who's Mr. Beatles in Canada, if he could mm-hmm. write something about the uh, what happened in Canada. And I couldn't quickly find someone on the U.K., so I decided I would write something on the U.K. myself, pulling everything from contemporaneous articles that came out then so I knew I'd be writing about what was going on in England at the time and did that and then I thought there would be a section on how these songs were of course recorded and then I thought you know this is really a book and so what am I going to call this book and and I realized you know the thing about Pepper that makes it so special is it was a communal listening experience and fans have stories and so I asked people to send in stories. And I know these two female hosts of this wonderful radio show, I forget the name of the show and I forget their name, but they contributed and sent in really good stories. And in one of them, I should really embarrass her, Jude, sent in a picture of her clutching the album under a Christmas tree. And to show you how much Jude respects me, in this picture, she still had curlers in her hair. So for that reason alone, you should buy the book to see Jude with curlers in her hair on Christmas morning. And And no makeup. And no makeup. And I got these (laughs) wonderful pictures. You know, people didn't have cell phones in those days that could take – they didn't have cell phones. If you Mm -hmm. took a picture, you had to get it developed. Mm -hmm. You had to pay money. And so there are not a lot of pictures, but we got about a half a dozen or so precious pictures. One of my favorites, Mm -hmm. no offense, Jude – is Mark Lewison standing yeah. in an English garden as a little kid wearing the Sergeant Pepper badge and stripes that he cut out from the cutout sheet. So and cute. his wonderful mm-hmm. story. And you know what? I realize musicians are Beatle fans too. So I turned yeah. to some musicians, and Pat Denizio unfortunately passed away uh, this year. Pat, yeah. wonderful story of his experience. Mm-hmm. Peter Tork of the Monkeys, a very heartfelt story of you know, about the Beatles and him first hearing the album at David Crosby's house and Billy Mm -hmm. Joel. I won't tell you Billy's Mm -hmm. story because I think you should buy the book. And I guarantee you that alone's worth the price of admission of Billy Joel Mm -hmm. telling the story of the first time he heard Sgt. Pepper. 
and just a story that if it had been from anybody else, it would have been one of the highlights of fan recollections. And then ones that touched my heart where they literally brought tears to my eyes, where people talked about that they listened to the album with their parents, and for that reason it meant so much to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it is, it's a great book. It's it's such a tender and touching book, and it's funny at moments, and it just it, it's a, it's a great collector's piece. Everyone will mm-hmm. identify when you read that book. You go, yes, that happened to me. Yes, I remember that. So you know, well, and like really, all the books, you know, color pictures throughout because you know they're either color or original black and white. I never colorized anything, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Well, they're all great. they're all beautiful. They're all and they look they look so fantastic on your coffee table, I must add. They do. They truly do. Now, Bruce, we our live listening audience is going to sign off in about 2 minutes and the rest of us who will be listening in archives have another 10 minutes. But for those who will be leaving, tell them where they can keep in touch with you, Facebook, Twitter and so forth. Well, my website is uh, beetle.net. Uh, no S, just B-E-A-T-L-E dot net. And uh, so that's a good place to go. And, of course, the books are available there, the ones that are still available. And uh, I am on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, I don't, honestly, I'm sure you you can find it. My website can tell you how to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. And I, and I never on Facebook talk about what I ate for lunch or anything like that. So it's, you know, more. <laughs> or how much laundry you know about, you've had to do this week. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I think things I'm doing and the like. And, you know, I try to let people know this coming weekend in New Orleans. Uh, if you live in New Orleans, some of your listeners might. I'll be at the Britannia Theater introducing concert mm-hmm. for George. And each time, it was showing it three times, and each time I'll do a different presentation on part of George's oh. career. Uh, do you know? So I do things like that, and uh, for listeners who are in other places, uh, you know, uh, email me because uh, you know I am willing to travel to certain locations and do certain things because talking about the Beatles is a lot of fun. It is. It truly is. Well, Absolutely. Lena has the riveting question that we all want to know. Oh yeah. Boxes Absolutely. Or briefs? Briefs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you could show us on the on our show, so this is the only show where you can actually uh, show that to us. But, Bruce, of all of those books, of all those fantastic books, which one would you consider your favorite, or is it, as John Lennon once said in an answer to a question from a reporter, that um, his favorite original song would would be the, the one he just finished? <laughs> You know, there, there's a lot to be said for that. I certainly could argue that the Sgt. Pepper book is my favorite book. It's it's different. It has a different feel than the other books. It's a, a different size. Um, you know, it's a little mm-hmm. bit smaller, but it's it's a square book. And, you know, and mm-hmm. it has no captions in it uh, because the pictures and the text meld so well that while you're reading about something on a left-hand page, the right-hand page is going to have, uh, you know, an image to describe it and things. But if push came to shove, God, it's tough. You know, the VJ book because it was the first book. Every you know, your first song yeah. you wrote <laughs> might be your favorite. You know, I, uh, so in that regard. But also, uh, the Beatles are coming because it's such a wonderful story. Those are the ones that pop out as my favorites. But you know, they all have their special things about them that I like. And I'm yeah, sure I have that to your put in... listeners too. 
I have to put in my vote for the Beatles for, Beatles for Sale on Parlophone Records. Of course, I'm using that quite a bit now to do research for Volume 4 in the John Lennon series because they're in studio recording Beatles for Sale. But the uh, that book covers everything you want to know about mm-hmm. the original Parlophone recordings. And I asked Alexa last night, who just perked up her ears when I said that, to play um, – <laughs> I want, and if she's listening to me now, so I have to be careful. Alexa, never mind. Well, I asked her to play one of the Parlophone LPs, and it, it was a Capital and a Parlophone LP, so she could have chosen either option. She picked Parlophone. So that, I mm-hmm. thought that was very interesting since that's an Amazon product. But mm-hmm. Parlophone is the, you know, that's the original. That is... Yep. That takes you back to the basics, and that is a great, great book, and I am loving every word of it. So thank you very much. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, it's it was just a very interesting thing, and it was really going to be one footnote in Beatles history, you know, the Beatles records on VJ, and that was it. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Mm. Yeah, well, you have, wow. you have made all of us so... I mean, it's helped researchers. It's great for fans. It's great for people who love Beatles music on so many levels. It's been helpful. And it is, as always, a great honor, Bruce, to have you with us, especially because you're celebrating your 20th year as a highly esteemed Beatles author. And um, I've read all the books. I have them all. I hate to tell you I've written notes in the margins because I've used them so much. (laughs) And I found them all vital in research. And I, I thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate and, that. And as a student of Beatles music myself, I've enjoyed reading them as well, and and I love displaying them on my coffee table and learning <laughs> more and more about how these classic songs came to be. Um, so we thank you for the detailed work that you've done, Bruce, and the many difficult situations you've hurdled to bring these true stories and photos and images to Beatles scholars, students, and fans. Well, thank you. I appreciate hearing that. That's very nice. Now, we want to have you back again, Bruce, because we didn't even get to talk about the, the Walter Cronkite story. You've had so many brushes with greatness. You've, had, you've been back and forth to, to England many times. We didn't talk about the fact that you wrote the Beatles trivia game question. So will you come back again? Mm-hmm. Love to come back again. Uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to be on a show where you have a host or in this case two hosts that are very well informed about the group and and you can have good interaction and good questions as opposed to you know somebody who uh when you talk about a paste over cover and they go yeah i, I remember i heard about the white album you know and you're like no <laughs> so, believe it or not that did happen one time well, yesterday and today was the white album because it had a white background cover and i thought no 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 oh anyway. dear Oh dear. Well, and and we didn't we didn't ask about your haircut, so uh, That's we left true. that part out today. Left that out. Yeah. And, and actually, there is a boxers or brief story. The story is really quick. Is that I was at a fest for Beatle fans. They're all one and only in Orlando, and Joe Johnson, who does Beatle brunch, his daughter uh, talked Joe and I. We didn't know any better into getting in the front car in a water ride, and we were completely oh. drenched in water. <laughs> And I was going about a half hour later to the Hard Rock Cafe for a Beetlefest function. And I knew going into an air-conditioned building I would get sick. And I needed to buy all new clothes. 
and the only, mm-hmm. you know, and it's easy to get shorts and a shirt and socks, and the only underwear they had was Spider-Man boxer shorts. <laughs> and so I bought a pair of Spider-Man boxer shorts to wear at Beetlefest in the Hard Rock Cafe. First time I've ever told that story in an interview. That's the best ever. I feel very honored. that because you cannot top it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) That is great. Well, thanks so much, Bruce, and we look forward to hearing more of your stories again. But till then, here's to food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. Sarah and shine on. <laughs>